recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. joining us online. We're glad that you're able to still join us for our service this morning. And before we jump into the Word, I just want to share, I just feel the Holy Spirit just prompted me to just affirm um, what Lisa was sharing about, about the love of God, that it is limitless, that it doesn't matter where you're at, what you've done, what's brought you to this point. God's love will, is relentless and will not give up on you. And maybe that's for one or more of you here. But just a reminder that God's love is not just gracious and forgiving and accepting, but transformative. And as we come and surrender our hearts to Him, I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to you that He will change you to be more than you could have ever imagined you could be. As you understand the gospel, as you come to know Jesus in the cross, that He desires and longs longs to transform you and conform you to the image of Jesus so that like Lisa said you too could be an ambassador of God's love in your world God's love is that strong and big and and relentless and powerful that we can't even get our heads around and interestingly the same passage came to my mind Ephesians 3 this height and depth and width and breadth and we sang about it as well and I believe the Holy Spirit wants to say that to us this morning that God's love is more amazing, more wonderful, bigger than we can ever wrap our brains around. Trust yourself into God's love. Awesome. Um, well, also just wanted to say thank you to all the people who helped with youth camp from all reports. Uh, it was a great uh, 27 hours of camp, uh, which was fantastic. Um, good to see some of them here. We didn't tire them out too much. Uh, so thank you to our special, uh, our, none of our leaders are here. <laughs> they were the ones that were really tired. Uh, we just thank God for them and all the people who helped uh, they were watching online in from bed probably, um, which is great. They deserve it. They worked hard. Um, it's great to come around God's Word with you. Um, we're journeying. If you're visiting, if you're visiting online, if you're visiting here or uh, wherever you're tuning in, it, we're, through, we're working our way through the book of Ecclesiastes as part of our broken series. And um, I've entitled my message this morning, A Better Life, A Better Life, which kind of seems like a strange phrase or a strange title for a message on Ecclesiastes. But we'll get to that. But I want us to kind of think about this idea of a better life. Now, there are many companies, products, services that promise you that if you purchase their product or you sign up for their service, your life will be better. We live in that kind of world, right? Now, one, one product that I think, and again, like sometimes products, well, they don't live up to the promise. Other times they do. Other times they do live up to the promise, but they create problems that maybe we didn't anticipate. And so we kind of left with this wondering, have I really got a net return of a better life? One example of that kind of complexity is the mobile phone. Um, many of you, including me, remember a day before these things were invented, right? And we didn't think life could get any better. And yet... The phone, this thing, this gadget came along and in a lot of ways, our life was better. I don't have to drive around with a UBD on my lap anymore. I remember those days and you're flicking, you get to the end of it and you go, oh my goodness, I got to go to page something or other. Where is that? Praise God, we don't have to do that. We don't have to rely on the TV news at six in case we miss it to find out what the weather's going to be like tomorrow. 
we can get an hour-by-hour hour forecast of what the temperature is going to be and when it's going to rain and how much rain we're going to get. Amazing stuff. Life is better. But life is more complicated. Now we have problems of trying to switch off, to learn to put our phones down, turn them off, and now we have to come up with ways of when we're at restaurants, we all agree not to put our phones on the, on the table. We have to do those kinds of things that we continue to learn to relate to one another as human beings and not get lost in our technology and so is life really better? Well, I don't know. Yes or no. You can kind of figure that out. But when we come to Ecclesiastes, that's not the picture we get of life. Life seems to be generally really bad, negative, despairing, depressing. Because the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the teacher or Kohelet, is wanting to create this idea in our hearts and minds that's crystal clear that we, we, we are living in a world that's broken. It's, it's messed up, it, it, we can't control it, we can't predict it, uh, it it's, it's complicated, it's not straightforward, um, the, uh, cause and effect between righteousness and wickedness and good and bad things happening to them, they're really complex, they don't always work the way we think, really a messed up world we live in. And the reason he wants to drill that into our head over and over again is to burst any illusions that we might have that we can actually control this thing called life that we can actually determine it, that we can actually make it work for our benefit, for our advantage. And he wants to blow that illusion out of our minds that life is not controllable by humans. Absolutely not. And hopefully provoke us, challenge us, intrigue us to consider how do we live well in this broken world? What, what can help us live a better life even though there is brokenness all around us? And so we come to our passage this morning, Ecclesiastes 7. And it's all about wisdom. Now, up, up until now, Kohelet has been mixed about wisdom. He's kind of saying, look, in light of death, in light of the brokenness in our world, in light of the fact that we can't really control the world, wisdom, uh, it's limited. It, it only takes you so far. A couple of examples we've already come across. In chapter 1, he says this. Uh, sorry, Biblical wisdom, I need to kind of explain that for those of you who might not be familiar with that. Biblical wisdom has a lot... It's more than just intellectual, rational understanding of things. Uh, biblical wisdom has this idea of living orderly in God's world. It has a moral component to it. And so a good definition is it's a way of thinking and living that was orderly and morally upright. That is in right relationship to God, in submission to His will, and in alignment with His created order in the world. It's kind of living rightly with God and rightly in the world. That's probably a good working definition. So Kohelet, his understanding of wisdom earlier on in chapter 1 and chapter 2 was kind of limited. He said this, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge the more grief. So he's almost saying, no, ignorance is bliss in some ways. Kind of weird, right? In chapter 2, it doesn't get much better when it comes to wisdom. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless, for the wise like the fool will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So pretty bleak, pretty negative. But then chapter 7, I don't know, maybe he took some happy pills this morning when he wrote this section. 
there's definitely a different tone in this chapter, particularly around the topic of wisdom. He really seems to get this idea that even though wisdom is limited, even though wisdom does not allow us to control our world, living in wisdom, living wisely, living in submission to God and His will is better. Is better. You, if you read through this chapter, you will notice the number of times he uses that word better. Just some examples. Verse 1, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of death. Verse 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning. Verse 3, frustration is better than laughter. Verse 5, it is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person. It goes on and on and on. This theme of life works better if you live wisely. If you live wisely. Now, before we jump into the specifics of what he talks about in terms of how wisdom can make your life, can make my life better, we need to drill down a little bit into two really, really tricky passages in this chapter. Now, if you read it, you'd probably know the two I'm talking about. One of them is found in verses 16 to 18, where he says, Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? And this is the tricky bit. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. What's he saying there? Is he saying, as long as you're not really, really bad, and as long as you're not really, really good, it's okay. You can be a little bit wicked. That's how it reads. That's how it sounds. But even though... Scholars have debated as to what he's actually trying to say. The one thing they categorically say he's not saying is that compromise and a little bit of wickedness is okay for God's people. He is not saying that. So how should we understand it? Well, the best clue that we have is kind of where he gets to. Whoever fears God, that's one thing to keep in mind. And this idea of over-righteous and over-wise, what he's trying to get at is that on the one hand, you've got people who are completely blatant and defiant against God's laws, the wicked and the fool, right? So that's the people who turn their back against God and have, don't want anything to do with God. They just want to be their own gods and they choose their own morality and their own way of life. That's, we understand that. We get that. It's the overwise, over-righteous part that's the tricky part. Most people think that what he's trying to get at is this idea of striving for perfectionism. Think Pharisees when you think overwise, where you live in such a way that you think, if I just do all the right things, then I can get God to do for me what I want Him to do for me. Overrighteous. Overwise is a similar thing, where I can know so much, where I can exercise my re- reason and my intellect to such an extent where I can understand life so that, again, I can bend it to my will. So, again, the things that he's been saying all along. So, when he gets to that point, he's going, learn from both of these examples. If you try to control life, try to control God by your righteousness, by your pursuit of perfectionism like the Pharisees did, because that's what they thought. God sent us into exile because we sinned. Now, if we build up enough rules and regulations and never actually break any of God's laws, then that won't happen to us again. God will now owe us because we're really good and righteous people. Now, that thing, sometimes we wrestle with that. Self-righteousness, perfectionism. God, you now owe me. I've been such a good person. I've done everything you've asked me. Now, how can this bad thing happen to me? Kohelet says, beware that deception. Because you're, you're no different to the wicked person. You're just using your righteousness as a way to control God. The same with the overwise. 
So that's what he's trying to say there. Because the end point he gets to is about fearing God. The wicked need to repent and fear God. And the over-righteous, the over-wise also need to repent of their desire to try and control God through their righteousness and their wisdom. The second tricky bit is the harder one. Here we go. Verse 28, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. I don't know if the women are going to read anywhere past chapter 7 after that statement. So let me give this a crack. This is really hard. And again, sometimes the uh, English Bibles, they, 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 they make it harder. All right? In the original Hebrew, the, the word upright before man and woman is not there. It just says, I found one man among a thousand, one woman among a thousand. The reason the NIV has put in upright is there's two choices the way the grammar is working. You can choose that that statement that he makes there is, is linked to what follows, which is about this only have I found. God created mankind upright. It's there. That word is there. But they have gone in search of many schemes. You can link the man-woman part to that aspect, or you can link it to the preceding bit, which is the whole bit about adding one thing to another to discover the scheme. There's the same word again, discover the scheme of things while I was searching, but not finding. So which way do we go? So if we go the second, the the first way, which is linking it to the uprightness, what he's trying to say is in my research, which is limited because he's writing Kohelet and a lot of wisdom literature is written from a male perspective. He's saying that in my research, I found that there's not a lot of righteous people in the world, whether they're men or they're women. It's not about the proportions. It's the conclusion he comes to. They have all gone in search of many schemes. Kind of what he says in verse 20. There is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. That's the conclusion he comes to. And men and women are both the same, culpable, right, uh, wicked, as humanity as a whole is broken and sinful. If you go the former way, where you link it to the preceding verses, where he's searching to try and make connections. He's using mathematical language, adding one thing to another to discover the scheme of things. And he's referred uh, uh, to that phrase, the scheme of things, three times. The first time is in verse 25. So I turn my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things. And commentators believe what writer Kohelet is trying to do is to find cause and effect, is to find connections. And what he's saying then in verse 28 is that I have not been able to really find a connection between gender and morality. Uh, Even though I want to, uh, I want to kind of say this, but I haven't been able to find any kind of link, any kind of pattern that I can say, I can definitely guarantee that this is what's happening. And again, that would be consistent with what he said in the rest of the book as he's tried to figure out life that he can't quantify it, predict it, and systematize life. That's my best attempt. All right. So now let's talk about wisdom and how wisdom makes our life better. So the first thing that he says in this passage as we go through it is that wisdom makes life better because we can learn from life if we're wise ones. We can learn from life. And that's how wisdom works in Proverbs, in Ecclesiastes, in the Song of Solomon. It's people who are looking at the world and observing life and learning from it. And here he highlights four things that we can learn from. The first one is death. Basically he says, verse 2 is the key verse, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. He's saying funerals are better than parties, basically. 
funerals to go to are better than birthday parties. And again, from my personal experience, every time I go to a funeral, it is an opportunity to pause and reflect on my life. And I don't know if you find that, but I do. When I listen to people's stories and how they lived, and I hear how people remember them and what they miss about them, it always makes me think about my own funeral. It makes me think about how people will remember me, how I want to be remembered. And also makes me think about, I wonder how God evaluates my life. That's wisdom. And the writer says, that's why it's better. Because death is the destiny of all of us. And the living, verse 3, should take this to heart. So if you want to be a wise one and live life better, and every funeral you go to is an opportunity for you to reflect on your life and how God sees your life from His perspective. Funerals are better. We also can learn from others. Verse 5, from rebuke, he says it is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the cackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Now again, you know, lots of people will have advice for us. But the writer here is making clear that the wise person discerns who to listen to. He listens to wise ones, wise persons. Because it's easy to surround ourselves with fools, the people that tell us what we want to hear, that tell us, you're, you're amazing, you're doing incredible. But it's the people that we've given permission to to speak into our life or that we know that we can trust or that we know that have our best interests at heart or that, are, that love us so deeply that they're willing to tell us that we've got spinach stuck in our teeth and not worry about the embarrassment that that might cause. We can learn from rebuke when it's given in love because they're coming from people who love us dearly. So my question is, who have you surrounded yourself with? Who are the wise ones that speak into your life? Who do you have that you know that you can trust, that have your back, that have your best interest, that want more than anything for you to have a better life, for you to succeed, for you to grow in Christ-likeness. And that is their commitment they've made to you. Who do you have in your life that is speaking into your life that you can learn from? So he talks about rebuke, learning from a rebuke. The, the third thing he talks about is about the, the, the danger of taking shortcuts. And a wise person learns from process process. He says in verse 5, extortion turns a wise person into a fool. In other words, taking a shortcut to get something that you want or a bribe corrupts the heart. And we live in a world of hacks, right? That's, that's a new word that we've coined in our culture. A, a shortcut, a cheap way to do something. We, we're surrounded by all kinds of different hacks. And Kohelet says, if you take a hack that involves compromise, you lose more than you'll gain. You, you'll make yourself a fool out of that. So he says, a wise person learns from process, learns from going slow, learns from waiting for God to do his work and trusting that God is at work in the process, in the delay. God's at work. So my question to you is, what is God teaching you in the delays that you're facing right now? in that promotion that you really want or the opportunity that you seek or the relationship that you've been wanting for, whatever it might be, there's a gap between the timing of what you would want and it seems like God has pressed the pause button in your life and you're kind of waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting and you don't know how long you're going to be waiting for and in impatience, you might try to find a hack 
And Kohelet will give you caution to go, if you want your life to work better, trust God in the process and ask him what he's doing in your life in the delay. The last thing he wants us to say is, wise people learn from the past. Look at what he says. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be uh, quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Sorry, that's part of uh, the, the process. Have I got all my points right? No, that's right. Verse 10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. The wise don't long for the past. They learn from the past. And they live now. They, they appreciate the value of the past, but they don't say the old days are better than these. See, the reason why that is is because we grow impatient, which is the one thing he talks about in the verse before. When we, we long for change and we want something to happen, and then it doesn't, and there's a delay, we begin to question, and we, we want to go back to the safety of what we knew. Uh, I mean, the best example, there's so many, but the best biblical example is the children of Israel in the wilderness. There was such a long delay between God promising them to rescue them from Egypt and taking them to the promised land. And all the way in the wilderness, so many times they wanted to go back. Because it was hard in the wilderness. They had to fight. They had to have manna every day. They complained and they whinged and they, they whined. Because there was a delay. There was a process. God was wanting to work in their heart and teach them something. I've been reading through Judges um, and it's the same in there. They're, they're just wanting to get the quick fix and the easy. And he's saying, you know, a generation grew up that didn't know God's faithfulness in the past. And he had to teach them how to fight all over again. What, what is God wanting to teach you from your past? that he wants you to live in light of now. The wise person asks themselves that question all the time. God, what have you shown me from my childhood? What are you teaching me about my own sinfulness? What are you teaching me about the mistakes I've made? What are you teaching me that I can do differently this time around? You know, they, they, you know the saying that the, the, the definition of, of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Kohelet would say, the wise person will not do that. The wise person learns from their past and lives differently in light of what they've learned. A 19th century English writer, uh, he said this, while you are dreaming of the future and regretting the past, the present, which is all you have, slips from you and is gone. And Kohelet would say, meaningless, vanity, vapor. Live well in the present in light of your past. So there's things that we can learn and... Uh, Wisdom makes our life better if we can actually learn from these things that Kohelet is telling us to learn from. The second thing that, that wisdom does is it helps you see life differently. You see life differently when you put on wisdom glasses, if you like. You know, people talk about wearing rose-colored glasses. That's a saying that we have when we see the world in all warm, romantic, positive light and we don't see the harsh realities of life. Well, Kohelet says, put wisdom glasses on because that will affect the way you see your life. And then he, he points us to three things that we ought to see differently because it, we're wearing our wisdom glasses. The first thing is money. 
money. He talks about in verse 11, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. So again, it's very, very positive about wisdom here. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. Money, on the other hand, throughout what he's told us already, and certainly what the New Testament tells us, what Jesus tells us, destroys us somehow, the love of money. The love of money corrupts and destroys us. Wisdom would see money differently. Wisdom would see money as God sees money. Wisdom would see money in light of how Jesus taught about money, that you can't serve God and money. Wisdom would choose to trust God for security, not myself and what I can earn and what I can save and what I can invest Wisdom would say, don't put your money, uh, your confidence, your security in something that rust can erode, that thieves can steal. Jesus taught us that. So wisdom sees money differently. The other thing that wisdom sees differently is the good and bad things that happen in life. Verse 13, consider what God has done, he says. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? But when times are good... Be happy, but when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. What he's saying is only God is sovereign. Trust, the wise person trusts in the providence of God, in the sovereignty of God in good times and bad. The wise one knows that, you know, life is life and good things will happen to us and bad things will happen to us. But in all of that, we can trust in our our heavenly father's sovereign care over us. So that when bad times come, we don't, our world doesn't fall apart. And when good times come, we recognize where those good times came from, from the gracious hand of our father. And we are filled with gratitude and we worship and thank him because of those good times. And in the bad times, we drill deeper into him. Rest in him because he is sovereign. Because what he straightens, no one can make crooked. And he is the only one that knows the future anyway. We might not, but we know that he holds our future. The wise one sees good and bad times differently. The last thing I think uh, that he talks about wisdom allowing us to see differently is something that we all wrestle with. And that's this idea of righteousness and wickedness the injustice in the world. And we've talked a lot about that. He says, in this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. You've seen that. I've seen that. And the teacher says, but when you have your wisdom glasses on, you have a long-term view. You're not short-sighted. You're long-sighted. You have a vision of God's justice and God's righteousness and God's goodness, and you entrust yourself to Him. Psalm 73 is probably uh, another great psalm for you to read where the writer is wrestling with this tension of seeing the righteous perishing and the wicked prospering. And he gets to the end and he goes, but then I went to the house of the Lord and I put my, he doesn't say this, he, I put my wisdom glasses on and I saw life differently. Paul reminds us in Galatians, you can't fool God. You can't mock God. Whatever you sow, you reap. You sow to the flesh, you reap from the flesh death and destruction. You sow to the spirit, you'll reap life. Wisdom puts those glasses on in the midst of wickedness and unrighteousness and injustice in our world that will break your heart, that will come crashing through your home, that will affect you personally and teaches you to have a long-term view of God's faithfulness to judge rightly. 
The, the third and last thing that he tells us about wisdom making life better for us is that wisdom empowers us and, and gives us the fortitude to deal with the challenges of life. And he says this in, in verse 19, wisdom makes one person, one wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. He's saying, look, military power, political power and might is, is one thing, but a wise person has more strength to deal with the challenges of life. Basically what he's saying, given the previous verse, verse 18, that the wise one who lives in reverence of God, who fears God, doesn't have to fear anything else. Doesn't have to fear anyone else because you've bowed your knee to the most powerful person in the entire universe. And when you live wisely, when you live under his rule, when you bow the knee to Jesus and you submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in your life, then you can face every other challenge, every other storm, every other difficulty that comes your way. And again, he highlights four things that are challenges that we ought to expect. Now, it's interesting the things he focuses on, and I'm not saying that you might find that these are particularly challenges for you, but you may. But he chooses to focus on four different things that obviously meant something to him. But I think we can benefit from looking at these four challenges that wisdom helps us to stand firm in the face of. One, we've already kind of talked about the ongoing presence of sin in our world and making it more personal, the ongoing presence of sin in our lives. He says, there is no one righteous on earth who, who is, no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. And like I said before, verse 27 to 29, again, he's talking about the ongoing reality of sin and brokenness in our world. And friends, that's hard. Because again, as we look into our own lives, and as I shared before what I felt the Holy Spirit was prompting me to say, it's so easy to get discouraged when we say to ourselves, man, I, I thought I would have sorted this out by now. I've been a Christian for so long. I can't believe I'm still struggling with this. And we allow what Romans 8.1 says, that we don't have condemnation to come into our hearts, guilt and shame to cripple us. And we allow the enemy to, to rob us of the joy of intimacy with our Father. Kohelet will say, stand firm because you bowed the knee to Jesus. Walk in his strength. Walk in the power of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, who will lead you deeper into Christ. Walk in the Spirit, whose ministry and role is to conform you to the image of Jesus. Walk in the Spirit, whose role is to sanctify you and make you perfect in that day when Christ comes. But right now, you're not perfect. And you're not going to be this side of the return of Christ. Or you're going to be with him in glory the reality of ongoing sin. The wise person has a different perspective when they look at themselves. They don't run from God in those moments of shame and guilt and disappointment and frustration. They run to Him. They run to Him for grace and mercy and forgiveness. But the other thing that the wise person does is also give other people some slack too. They're more generous. They're more gracious with forgiving others because, again, they know, look, no one's perfect. I'm not perfect. I know that. I see my own sinfulness, my own brokenness. I know that well. I know I'm living in a world where Jesus has still got a lot of work to do in me, and we extend that same grace to our brothers and sisters because there is no one who is righteous except one, and he's the one that came and took upon himself our sinfulness and clothed us with his righteousness. Wisdom allows us to stand firm in the midst of ongoing sin. The second thing, and I think this is probably something that we've all wrestled with, verse 21 and 22, the, the, the 
the challenge and the hurt that comes from words. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. You see that tension again. We live in a broken, sinful world. People will say things that wound you, and maybe you grew up hearing things that your parents said or your your teacher or, or another authority figure or a pastor or a leader spoke words over you that hurt you so deeply. And, you, and you've dealt, and had to deal with the rejection or uh, a sense of shame or a whole bunch of things. You know, we've talked at PCC before of the power of words. And that people who say sticks and stones, it's a load of baloney. Words leave longer scars than sticks and stones ever do. And Kohelet says, when you live in the fear of God, in reverence of Him, submitted to Jesus you learn that what he says matters more than what anybody else says. That's what really counts, what he speaks over you. And interestingly, our next series is going to be all on that. We're going to call it Who You Say I Am. And we're going to look at our identity in Christ because we want to get that crystal clear. Because in a world, in a culture, surrounded by other broken people, people will say all kinds of things about you. They will curse you. But your father says very, very different things. Jesus speaks very different things. And the wise one stands firm because they know what their father says about them. And again, we see in verse 22, this idea of being gracious because we know we've cursed other people in our hearts. We know we've said hurtful things. And so we can again extend grace and mercy. Like Jesus said, those who've been forgiven much ought to be generous with their own forgiveness. So standing firm in the midst of hurtful words. The third thing he talks about is what I've kind of labeled limitations. Verse 23, all this I tested by wisdom, and I said, I am determined to be wise. So Kohelet doesn't take his own advice. He wants to strive to be the overwise one because he says, whatever exists is far off, and this is the conclusion he comes to. Who can discover it? Verse 25, so I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, to search out wisdom and the scheme of things and to understand the stupidity of wickedness and the madness of folly. Basically, he's breaking the bounds and the parameters of human limitation in trying to have the knowledge of God. He wants to know everything. And his conclusion is verse 24, whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? Now, even though his focus here is just on the limitations of wisdom, throughout his book, he's reminded us as humans that we are limited. We are finite. We are mortal. We don't control the universe. We don't control life. We are not God. And the wise one can stand firm in the face of limitations. And why is that important? Because we don't like limitations. Think back to when you were a child. One of your words that you probably hated the most is being told no. It probably still is or can't. I remember a time, I don't know if my dad remembers this time, but I must have been probably about 12 or 13, and I thought I was ready to drive a car. And we had a Morris 1000, a black Morris 1000, and it was parked in the driveway. My dad was down in in a different property in our factory, and I, I thought, oh, he, he can't see me. And so I got in the car, I turned it on, and I just reversed it. must have been like six inches, like just to get a feel for what it was to be in this car. And I moved it back, and I moved it forward, and I quickly ran in the house. And I thought, oh, oh that was amazing. Sure enough, about an hour later, my dad comes, and he goes, oh, the car's been moved. And I go, what? 
And I, I felt the limitations uh, that I exceeded that day very, very strongly. We've all been there. And even as adults, we find it so hard. You know why? Because in Genesis 3, we found it hard. God said, you can have everything, just not this. So what do we want? We want that. And Kohelet says, if you're wise, you will accept God's limitations as a gift. As a gift. That's why God put down Sabbath laws. Because working seven days a week is not good for us. But we think we can. We think we can exceed our limitations and capacities and still retain our humanity. But we can't. And we hit walls and they bring depression, anxiety, worry, pain, grief, sickness. They bring all kinds of bad things every time we try and push beyond God's limitations for us as humans. And Kohelet says the wise person sits with that and goes, God, I trust you with the limitations you've placed on me. The last one he talks about is sex. No, it's not. I just put that up there to see if you were staying awake. It is sexual temptation. Sexual temptation. Verse 26, I find more bitter than death. Now he's talked a lot about death. I find more bitter than death the woman who is a snare, whose heart is a trap and whose hands are chains. The man who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner she will ensnare. Now again, keep in mind, Kohelet is a guy and he's writing from a male point of view. This is not just instructions to guys to keep their sexual purity. It's for all of us. But he's writing from a male perspective, just like the writer of Proverbs was writing as a father to his son. It's from a male perspective. So the, 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 the victim is always the man and the perpetrator is always the woman. But that, that's not how we ought to read this. He's just talking about sexual temptation. And in, in Proverbs chapter 7, the writer has extensive warning, a whole chapter on warning us about the dangers of sexual sin. And this was written thousands of years ago before the internet was on our phone. Another thing that has not made our life better. That we have access to pornography anonymously, cheaply, anytime, anywhere, privately, and no one would know. That is a dangerous world we live in. And that will bring us death. And that's what the writer of Proverbs says. Say to, the, say to the wisdom, speaking of this wise idea of wisdom. You are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman in, with her seductive words. Now then, my sons, listen to me, he says at the end of the chapter. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Sexual temptation is not something, excuse the pun, that we flirt with. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin we commit is different. Sexual sin defiles us spiritually and physically and mentally and emotionally in a way that nothing else does. Flee from it. So you're sold. You're saying, okay, where do I line up to sign up to buy wisdom? Because it sounds like a pretty good way to live. Sounds like it'll make my life a lot better. Well, as with everything in the, in the gospel, everything in Christianity, it's all anchored in Jesus. It's all anchored in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, flee, uh, sorry, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And then he says, 
and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God's wisdom is revealed in its ultimate way in Jesus. And it's as we abide in him and allow the spirit of truth to abide in our hearts that we can walk in wisdom. So if the band can jump up, I want to conclude by, I guess, reading two prayers that Paul wrote for us as a church, for, for us to grow in wisdom, because it's centered in knowing Jesus. It's centered in abiding in the spirit of truth. It's centered in surrendering our lives. And as Kohelet would say, it comes back to fearing God, bowing the knee to Jesus. And this is what Paul says in Ephesians. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you, here it is, the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. It's the spirit of wisdom. Look at the language. He talks about revelation and understanding. He talks about walking and and knowing God more and more and more. You want to live wisely. You want to live a better life. You want to live well in this broken world. Know Jesus. Abide in Him. Walk closely with Him. And in Colossians 1, he says something very, very similar. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will. There's biblical wisdom right there. The knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That's what it means to fear God. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share, here it is again, in the inheritance of His holy people in the kingdom of light. Why don't you bow your heads and close your eyes. Take a moment just to ask yourself, are you living in the fear of the Lord? Are you living as a wise one? Are you living in submission to Jesus Christ. This hope, this wisdom, this life is found in Him. And whether you're here or if you're watching online and you don't know Jesus, I encourage you to reach out to us, whether that means staying back after this service and talking to me, whether that's getting in touch with us, emailing us, reaching out to us so that we can introduce you to the wisdom of God that will transform your life as He brings you into the family of God through His death and resurrection on the cross. God longs for you to know Him and be in His family. But you can only do that in the way that He's made, through accepting His forgiveness on the basis of what Jesus did for you. And I'd love to pray with you and talk with you more about that. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, May we take heed of what the teacher has to teach us. May we be intentional in how we live. May we be more reflective. May we at funerals and in other places and other times and when things happen, when people speak things, 
to us that are hurtful or when we think about our past or whatever it might be, we keep asking ourselves, God, what are you teaching me in this moment? What do you want me to learn? When there is a delay, when we have to trust God in the process, when we see wickedness thriving and flourishing in our world, that we would be more reflective, that we would abide in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, lead us into all truth. As Paul prayed, that we would know you more, that we would share in the hope and the inheritance that you provided for us through Jesus, that we would know his resurrected life. We would know the spirit of wisdom as we live in this broken world, that we would be wise ones that others would come to and and seek out and, and want to know how we're living our lives and why our lives are different that we might have opportunity to to share how Jesus has changed our lives. Father, we ask for your peace, your shalom to rest and abide on us as we go. Be with us as we head into this new week that we would walk in your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.